This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal Land. Today, getting your kids off to sleep. What works and what doesn't? No mystery, just let them scream. Oh my goodness, Norman. Your, your kids turned out okay, though, so maybe you're onto something. Yeah, well, did we actually do that? You wait and see. <laughs> but you've got a real paediatrician on to talk about that later. Plus, the risk of dementia when you're on your bottom. It depends on what you're doing when you're sedentary. And whether there's any magic to the 10,000 step rule. And if the intensity of that exercise makes a difference to preventing dementia, heart disease, cancer, and dying prematurely. A very large study has delivered some answers. The senior author was Professor Emmanuel Stamatakis, who's at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. Welcome to the Health Report, Emmanuel. Thanks for having me, Norman. Good evening. Before we dive in, where did this idea of, I mean, I've always wondered, where does this idea of 10,000 steps a day come from? It seems like a dream marketing exercise for the companies that sell you those wristbands that monitor your exercise. The very origins of the 10,000 steps as a target uh, for daily walking uh, originates back to the Tokyo Olympics uh, in 1964. Oh, long before wearables. <laughs> a long time. In fact, in fact, there were. It was the advertising campaign for the very first wearable, a pedometer. Do you remember those old-fashioned things called pedometers? They yeah. don't really exist uh, <laughs> anymore because they've been replaced by the wearable trackers. Uh, so the advertising campaign was uh, uh, about uh, Mampoke. Mampoke means 10,000 meter in Japanese. So how this target survived over time, I don't think it was necessarily the, uh, I don't think that the intention was to uh, provide a target for the rest of the world for the next six or seven decades. I just, it happened to be a round number that stuck around really and uh, was used, was uptaken by, was adopted by manufacturers of uh, wearables and the media love it because it's a round number, it's easy to memorize. And just depresses people like me who can't achieve it because it's quite a lot of steps. It's quite a lot of steps, but I'm jumping now into the results of our studies. Well, let's uh, talk about this study first because yeah. it wasn't done in Australia, it was done with this amazing database in the UK. Yes, this is the UK Biobank. It's by far the largest resource of wearables data for physical activity, sedentary behavior and sleep-related research. Over 100,000 uh, people were uh, uh, wrist accelerometers over 24 hours for seven days. Um, and uh, just to give you an idea of the scale of this study, now if you put all previous studies which looked at uh, how daily steps affect health outcomes in general, like mortality, cardiovascular disease, if you merge them, if you pull them all together, you get a data set of approximately 40,000, 45,000 participants. The UK Biobank alone for the two studies we published concurrently uh, we used a sample of 78,000 out of these 100,000 participants, which uh, had... In, the, in just a single study? A single study. So it's to, uh, twice, uh, larger than twice the size of all previous studies together. I mean, just before we get on to the results, sorry to our audience for holding you, like, the results back, because that's what they want to hear. I mean, did wearing a wearable affect their exercise? So in other words, if you're wearing a wearable, that's going to motivate you to do more. So it might not, it might bias the study. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, so what happens typically in these research studies 
you see a little bit of react reactivity. What you described is reactivity to wearing a tracker, and which influences the behavior, the walking. You see a reactivity in the first one or two days of wearing them. And then people get used to it. A very important detail here is that the devices are black boxes. They don't have... Oh, so it's not giving you, data, you know, exactly. minute by minute feedback. Exactly, exactly. So that's why uh, devices like consumer wearables like Apple Watches and Fitbits, uh, yeah, they're not really, really appropriate for this kind of uh, of research. We use all the studies, uh, including UK Biobank, use what we call research-grade uh, wearables, which okay, are you've, you've, black boxes, you've no buttons. You've convinced me. Let's, <laughs> let's hear what you found. Okay, so one of the two, the, the, the two studies were submitted to journals independently. We had uh, slightly different aims. We wanted to see the dose, what we call the dose response, the amount of daily steps that seem to be associated with uh, benefits for dementia prevention, uh, risk of dementia. That was one paper. And the second paper was uh, the same research question, the number of daily steps associated with uh, lower risk of uh, mortality, cardiovascular disease, uh, instant mortality, and uh, cancer. Um, we found a fairly consistent findings across the two studies uh, in the sense that, first of all, we saw that, and this is a very important finding that indirectly answers your question about you're not doing 10,000 steps. We saw benefits. We saw benefits from much lower levels of daily stepping, lower than the 10,000 steps. In fact, from 4,000 steps, if I'm right. 3,000, 8,000 steps. 3,800. Three, sorry, 3,800 uh, uh, ste uh, 800 steps seem to provide half of the total effect. They lower dimension risk by 25%. 10,000 steps lower dimension risk, for example, by 50%. So half of the effect is already present with very low numbers of steps. Relative and, and there was a steady increase in between the two. And you, you seem to, with both studies, both for heart disease, premature death and cancer, mm -hmm. you, you maxed out at 10,000 steps. More than 10,000 steps, you didn't get much of a benefit. It was what gave you more benefit was the intensity of the exercise. Yeah. For every 2,000 steps, uh, the mortality in uh, cardiovascular disease study showed that for every 2,000 steps, you get an approximately a 10% decrease in uh, uh, in risk. Uh, we, it's true that the sweet spot, the optimal uh, benefit, uh, turned out to be around 10,000 steps, which is, by the way, I need to clarify, we were not looking for that. We were very agnostic in how we did the study. The study was based on a predetermined protocol. So we were not looking to verify in any way 10,000 10, steps and we were quite surprised actually when we did. Um, so where does intensity fit in? Intensity, how hard you're working? Intensity, yeah, the key finding, the headline finding with intensity, and that's a very, very important also finding because it looks like that intensity seems to bring additional uh, benefits over and above the total number of steps. And I need to clarify that this is not about average intensity. So the, in our studies, we did not use average intensity as a marker, aver, average, let's say, cadence, average walking pace. We used a specific measure called peak 30-minute cadence. And what that is, is basically summarizes the 30 fastest minutes of walking, the cadence from the 30 fastest minutes of walking per day, and then we uh, average them across the up to seven days of wear time. 
So is this a bit like high intensity, a mild form of high intensity interval training where you've got a spurt during your your period of exercise? You are very close. You are very, very close because this is ex- pretty much this is what this marker of intensity reflects. Short bursts of fast walking. So it's not necessarily about people who walk on average across the whole week, walk faster, but it's about those people who reach more frequently high intensity walking. So that highlights the value of short bursts of power walking. Uh, I mean, at the practical level, if we were to convert this finding into advice, uh, we, we could say that uh, people walk, could walk in whatever pace. They, some people may prefer a leisurely pace when they move from point A to B. Make sure that during this walk from a, point A to B, you maximize you maximize the pace for one, two, three minutes. So does That's this mean not- I've got to go out and get a Fitbit or does it translate into time? So the timing, the, you know, the recommendation is 45 minutes to an hour, most days of the week, mix, mix, muscle, you know, and maybe you can get away with a bit less if you've got high intensity exercise. Do you really need to count your steps? In the case of walking, I don't think it's necessary. It's uh, it's uh, the, the it, trackers can help. Trackers certainly can help because they help you monitor your total number of steps. Now, when it comes to maximizing the intensity, the rule of thumb here is that if you walk and you can sing, means you walk at a light intensity. If you can walk uh, while walking, you uh, cannot sing, but you can speak comfortably, moderate intensity. If you find it hard to speak, that means that you are reaching vigorous intensity. So this is the target. The target is to, from time to time, to aim for high intensity walking, vigorous intensity walking. A tracker could help. I don't think that many trackers out there, commercial trackers, have incorporated... Uh, Your ability to sing, I can understand that. Step, step, stepping cadence. We are talking to some of them at the moment. Uh, we, as, as you can imagine, we got a lot of interest from industry as well with uh, these studies, and we're talking to some of them, hoping to uh, convince them to incorporate some of these features in the next generation of uh, trackers. Really interesting. Thanks, Emmanuel. Thank you very much. Emmanuel Stamatakis is Professor of Physical Activity, Lifestyle and Population Health at Sydney University's Charles Perkins Centre. And this is Iron's Health Report. Let's flip the story now and look at the increased risks of sedentary behaviour because you'd expect that sitting a lot could increase your risk of dementia. But in fact, it depends on what you're up to when you're sitting. David Reichlin is Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Southern California. Can explain based on a study using a similar database to Emmanuel Stamatakis. We've done several different studies looking at how physical activity might improve or alter brain structure and cognitive function in people across the lifespan. So we've looked at young adults. We did a study looking at cross-country runners in college and showed some brain structural effects associated with their exercise patterns. And we've done intervention studies with older adults where we had people exercise and do cognitive activities at the same time and showed some changes in their cognitive function over a three-month period. So really physical activity is one of the best behaviors people can include in their life if they're concerned at all about their brain health as they grow older. There have been some studies which looked at older people exercising and their brain health and questioned how much of it is the exercise itself affecting the brain and how much of it is the fact that you're going to the gym, you're on a program, you've got to remember how many reps you've done and how many sets you're doing with other people, the stuff that goes around exercise often that may increase your cognitive capacity. There are a couple of ways to think about it. One, 
Absolutely. Social contact and social connections are another aspect of lifestyle that seem to have a beneficial role on the brain. So exercising in groups, you may get both of those beneficial aspects. We know from animal studies that there are some real biochemical changes that happen when organisms exercise or are physically active that seem to lead to brain benefits. And they are sort of roughly parallel to what we see in humans, specifically changes to the hippocampus, which is a really key part of our ability to have a strong memory. And it's an area of the brain that declines as we age and especially in diseases like Alzheimer's disease. So when you combine data from human intervention studies and epidemiology with the work in animal models, there's some real clarity that there are brain changes that happen when we exercise and there are some biochemical underpinnings to those changes. Now, there's two ways of finding out whether something has an effect on you. The best way is a randomized trial where some people get the intervention, like, say, exercise, and other people don't. That takes a long time, and dementia takes a long time to appear, so you could be doing the research for 15 years. And the other way is to look back in time, which is what you've done in this study using a database that we've talked about a lot on the health report, which is the UK Biobank, which is a massive repository of information about a large number of people in the UK associated with biological data. That's right. The work that we did included a large number of participants, so almost 150,000 people over the age of 60. And we were able to see what they were doing at baseline in terms of exercise and the kinds of sedentary behaviors they engaged in. And then we were able to track this group for an average of about 11 years to see whether certain kinds of activities were more strongly associated with the development of dementia. So if you were to casually read the title of your study or casually read it, you'd actually come to the wrong conclusion because you'd think, well, being sedentary is bad for your brain and increases the risk of dementia, but it actually wasn't exactly what you found. That's right. We found some surprising results here that sedentary behaviors were associated with dementia risk, but whether there was a benefit or an increased risk depended on what people did when they were sedentary. Participants were asked how much time they spent watching TV, and participants were asked how much time they spent using a computer in their leisure time, so non-work computer time. And we ended up finding that TV watching time was associated with an increased risk of developing dementia, but the use of a computer, and not a, that didn't take a lot of time on the computer, but the use of a computer was associated with a decreased risk of developing dementia. How do you know it wasn't to do with the person? I mean, for example, if somebody's already suffering cognitive decline, perhaps the easiest thing is just to sit on the couch and watch the telly in a bit of a daze. Whereas if you've already got it, you're using it and you're using it more on the computer and you've also got the resources to buy a computer and have time on it and you've learned how to use it. So it's not necessarily the same group of people. You're totally right. And in a data set like this, there's no way to be sure that, that that's not what we're seeing. And so in this case, we excluded people who developed dementia within the first five years of their following in a sensitivity analysis and found the same results. People always need to keep in mind that what we might be finding, say, with computer use is it's other aspects of that person that are both linked to computer use and linked to reduced risk of dementia. So as you say, you know, maybe people have higher income, higher education, something about them that makes them use a computer. We try to control for those variables, but you can't account for everything. But I think what we can do with this kind of big data set 
is we can kind of hone in on characteristics that become really important then to look at with a randomized control trial. So it might be worth doing a randomized control trial to pull people away from TV watching and see if that has any effects on, say, biomarkers that are associated with disease status or something like that. Well, it's hardly a toxic drug uh, to give somebody to pull them away from the telly. And, but, and presumably the implication of this is if you were to assume that watching less television and getting up off your bottom to get more exercise is one solution, that's actually going to fit with what we know already. And if you're doing stimulating things on your computer rather than just watching Netflix, then that actually also might be a good thing to do. Exactly. These are very low-cost changes to behavior that could have big benefits. David, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. David Reichlin is Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Southern California. If you've ever spent meaningful amounts of time with small humans, you'll know that getting them to go to sleep when you want them to isn't always easy. But for some parents, it's especially hard. Like these people that Health Report producer Shelby Trainer spoke to last week. So 12 years ago, we had our first baby and he just didn't sleep from probably three months. And we tried everything. We tried chiropractors, we tried doctors, everything on the internet that you could read and nothing helped. We finally went to sleep school and unfortunately we failed sleep school. So we're pretty much left to our own devices in desperation, I just went to the doctor and said I couldn't cope. In the end, doctor prescribed melatonin and the poor kid still needs it to get to sleep. First time dad. We were living with my parents-in-law. I think they could just tell how strung out we were. We got a, um, a contact for a, we called her a sleep witch. So we just had to send audio clips of what the baby sounded like while she was crying. She'd either say, now it's time to intervene, give her a pat, do that sort of thing. I bought myself a big bottle of whiskey as a kind of present for myself and to help me get through it. And by the end of that, it kind of worked, but it was pretty harrowing stuff. Two of my children had CPAP machines for young kids. So it's pretty daunting initially. Having a great, knowledgeable specialist and having that support, we were very fortunate to get on a really positive pathway with that. Definitely just do the consultation, just check it out. It's worth it. My youngest son, he was probably six months old when I first went, I can't do this and I need to call someone for help. I was thinking, how am I meant to go back to work if I'm literally sleeping 45 minutes every night? So yes, this wonderful lady we hired, she actually told me things I probably already knew, but I was too tired to work out how to apply them. All of a sudden, Dan and I woke up one morning and went, we didn't get woken up last night. Have we turned a corner? In saying that Arlo has melatonin bedtime now to go to sleep because his poor little brain's 100 miles an hour. My favourite one ever was when one of the boys woke up in the middle of the night to ask me, why is there a volcano on Mars but not on Jupiter? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. Go back to sleep. <laughs> but Norman, why is there a volcano on Mars and not on Jupiter? Oh, I don't know. I fell asleep during the, uh, during the astronomy course. Well, can I tell you? Yes. Well, Mars is a rocky planet, so it has a volcano, Mons Olympus, the biggest volcano in the solar system. Jupiter's made of gas, so it can't have a volcano. So we need to call up Arlo and tell him. 
glad that I am so scintillating to you. But what do you do if you've got a kid who can't or won't sleep? Well, there's been a recent review of the evidence into helping otherwise healthy kids to sleep longer without the use of drugs. Professor Harriet Hiscock from the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne wrote an editorial to accompany the research. Harriet, welcome. Thank you. What sleep problems are you seeing most commonly in young people? Well, I think particularly with with COVID, I know we can't get away from talking about that. We've seen an increase in anxiety-related insomnia. So kids just lying in bed worrying about things in the world and that's stopping them get to sleep. And so when we're trying to intervene with that then, what did the review, because everyone's got their own ideas, right, but this is a review of the evidence, yep. what were the main takeaways from this review? Well, this review was really just focusing on interventions that had tried to improve the duration of sleep. So it wasn't particularly targeted at kids who might be anxious, for example. But it was pretty surprising that just the simple advice or strategies to try and lengthen the duration of sleep was effective. And overall, it had a pretty modest effect um, when they looked at complex interventions of just increasing kids' sleep by 11 hours per night, which is not a lot. But when they honed in on the studies... 11 hours per night? Sorry, no, 11 minutes. What am I saying? 11 hours would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, Probably I need more sleep. But when they honed in on the studies that just focused on increasing sleep duration, they actually increased it by, you know, half an hour per night, which over a week, you know, adds up to three and a half hours, which is likely to have some, you know, flow on benefits to the child's health and mental health. And most of the the intervention that seemed to be most effective was just earlier bedtimes. Exactly. And I know that sounds simple, but actually, if you've got a kid, that's often quite a challenge to do. So sometimes it was just an advice, you know, to go to bed earlier. But particularly when the trials were involving adolescents, it was then brainstorming with them, well, how can you go to bed a bit earlier each night? What needs to happen? What do you need to get out of your room, devices, etc.? What do you need to do earlier in the evening so you can get enough sleep? This study looked at a pretty big age range, 18 months through to 18 years. Obviously, kids along that span need very different things when it comes to sleep. Are there uniting factors or are there certain phases of of childhood that we have kind of rules of thumb for? Look, we have sort of broad um, durations of sleep that we should be aiming for and they they're obviously longer in younger kids and and shorter in the adolescents. But it's also the sleep quality, which this paper didn't look at because um, it's not just how much you sleep, but if your sleep's fragmented or not and and therefore the quality of sleep that's important. But I guess overall this paper is really saying um, in this age where we have a lot of demands on our time, a lot of social media, kids on screens from a very young age, um, which is impacting their sleep, maybe we need to stop and look at that, put those things aside and actually encourage them to get to bed earlier um, because that seemed to have the greatest impact. This intervention, uh, this review was looking at non-pharmacological interventions, i.e. things Mm. that aren't drugs, but we did hear a couple of the parents in that little mix before talking about melatonin. Is there a place for that in, in most families? Look, it's a, melatonin's a second-line intervention. So really the first-line interventions for most sleep problems in children are what we call behavioural interventions, of which this is one of them. But certainly we're seeing more and more children being prescribed melatonin or, you know, sourcing it through online um, 
resources, et cetera, and it does have a place if the behavioural interventions haven't worked. And for some children, it's certainly, um, particularly children with maybe neurodevelopmental issues like autism or ADHD, melatonin can be really helpful in them getting to sleep, but certainly you need to sort of address the behavioural issues first. When should people be worried about their kids' sleep? That's a great question. Really, it's being worried if you think that a lack of sleep or poor sleep quality is impacting your child the next day. So are they struggling to get up and function at school or kindergarten? Are they falling asleep on the way home? Are they exceptionally irritable or grumpy? So really, um, it's it's a no, not really a one-size-fits-all if you have to have a certain amount of sleep per night, but what is the impact on the child's function and mental health the next day is, is the, really the telltale signs for parents and if you've got a kid who is grumpy, who is getting irritable, who is or else, you know, getting quite down and flash or is not functioning the way they used to function, that's when you should see someone if you're worried about their sleep. We heard Norman joking at the top of the show that <laughs> let them cry it out. Uh, is there a place for that sort of so-called controlled crying? Uh, well, controlled crying is different to crying it out. So crying it out is when you shut the door on the child and let them cry it out for the night. And that's certainly not something that we use or condone. Um, but what the controlled comforting or controlled crying is a little bit different to that. You don't shut the door and leave. You go in and out of the bedroom to your child, you know, for increasing time intervals to say things like, I love you very much, but it's sleep time. It's time to go to sleep. Um, and that's been shown to be really effective. And it's also been shown in our studies of randomised controlled trials, you know, one year, two years and five years down the track to have no adverse impacts on the child or the parent-child relationship. Well, that's, so that's reassuring. Yeah, Harriet, it really is. Thanks so much for joining us, Harriet. Pleasure. Thank you. Professor Harriet Hiscock is a consultant paediatrician and associate director of research at the Centre for Community Child Health and the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. And Norman, we heard Harriet talking there about anxiety and there's actually been new guidance from the US uh, that anxiety screening should be happening sort of for anyone. Well, anyone under the age of 65, yeah. It's a draft recommendation. And earlier on this year, they recommended that 8 to 18-year-olds be screened for anxiety. So it sounds like a good idea. I mean, anxiety and depression are underdiagnosed in Australia. Um, probably about 30% of people with depression are either undiagnosed or untreated, and it's probably similar or worse for anxiety. So it sounds like a really good idea getting GPs to do some screening. The problem with screening is that there is a discipline about screening. You've got to have an effective test that's cheap and easy to administer. Well, there is there are questionnaires that GPs can do, but they do take a bit of time. Then there's got to be an effective treatment. Well, there are effective treatments for anxiety, but the problem is that we don't have the resources. So, for example, not everybody's the same who's got anxiety. So screening is going to turn up people with anxiety of varying levels of severity. So who's who merits treatment in a resource-poor environment? And then some of those people with anxiety, the anxiety is like the spearhead, and behind the spearhead is a lot of complexity in people in some people's lives. Drug and alcohol, complex family situations, poor housing... Um, unemployment, um, other more uh, severe and persistent mental health issues. 
And that is not sorted by going to an individual psychologist for cognitive behavioural therapy. You need a team-based approach. This is what Ian Hickey and Pat McGorry have been on about for a long time. So we. So when are they saying that you would get this screening? Any time you rock up for a GP visit? Yeah, basically. That's, uh, that, that should be done. But probably not on an, every single visit, but certainly on a regular basis. And that's not <coughs> entirely clear. And there's been a lot of criticism of this suggestion. Because the United States is no different from us. They don't have the mental health resources to be able to deal with this either. So you've just got to be careful what you, what you wish for, which is a different thing from um, saying to people, when you're feeling anxious and it's bothering you, you've got to bring it up with your doctor and talk it through because there is help. Beyond Blue's got great resources if you want to go to that. So um, that's the story there. That's the health report for this week. Well, Tian, all that's left is to invite everybody to join us next week. Indeed. See you then. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.